Hi, my name is uh, Jacob Ware. I'm the Research Associate for Counterterrorism at the Council on Foreign Relations. It's a great honor to be joined today by Bruce Hoffman. Bruce is the Shelby Cullum and Catherine W. Davis Senior Fellow for Counterterrorism and Homeland Security at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's also a tenured professor at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service, where he directs the Center for Jewish Civilization. Bruce, I want to talk to you about your recent work on the far right, including a piece that we co-authored together in uh, Lawfare about the fracturing of violent far-right extremism. So how do you see that the far-right has fractured? It's, it's not just the, the far-right. I think what we're seeing is the phenomena in terrorism overall where the stereotypical or traditional hierarchical organizations with identified leaders and um, very palpable command and control organizations are giving way to something that's um, far more disparate, far more diffuse, where there's not leaders issuing orders, there's not organizations in a chain of command that are actually implementing those orders, but it's something much more spontaneous and something much more amenable to the era of social media that we find ourselves in, where in other words, people are uh, inspired, motivated, and then deliberately animated to go out and commit acts of violence. And I thought what was so interesting about our research for, for, for the Lawfare article is that we tend to look at terrorist entities as monoliths, but as we've seen with the violent far right in the United States, it's anything but that. There's, there's of course, an enormous commonalities and an anti profound anti-government sentiment is sort of the glue that holds it together, but you have white supremacists and also persons of color. Um, you have persons that have very specific anti-governmental accelerationist agendas and others that are champion, cha often championing single issues. But I think what they all have in common, despite its diffuse and disparate nature and what I find so worrisome, is a collapse, collapse of confidence and faith in both elected leadership and in the Western democratic state as it has existed and provided for the democratic republic that we live in. It seems to me that, you know, as, as, as these different kind of factions have emerged, as we, um, you know, lose, lose track of, of leaders and, and lose track of organization, it seems that it's very difficult to pinpoint which faction would pose the main threat, right? Obviously, you have the, yeah. the boot, which has been in the news a lot, uh, particularly for their role around protest following uh, the George Floyd killing. You've got QAnon, which probably has support in the millions now and seems to have inspired the main plot around the election, um, a possible attack, a thwarted attack in mm -hmm. Philadelphia. And then it remains to be seen how the pandemic will end up affecting rates of radicalization when you've got young people around the country staying at home, spending unprecedented amounts of time online in what is an extremely polarized political climate. Um, and, and it remains to be seen whether as the pandemic lifts and some of these um, you know, traditional targets like places of worship begin to reopen, whether we'll see um, more violence. And it seems to me, Bruce, I'm curious for your thoughts. It seems that counterterrorism counter is left in a very tough position where you can't really prioritize. You don't know how to counter threats when you can't even predict what threats the most dangerous. Yes. Well, I think the, the problem is that, of course, terrorism has always been a strategy of provocation and it's designed through an act of violence or the threat of violence to elicit some response that the perpetrators hope will be amenable or will further their goals. And exactly what you've described is what makes the current situation, I think, 
really unprecedented in, in, in many respects and, and worrying. It's that, you know, one can with only great difficulty predict how even an isolated act of violence can spiral out of control or can motivate and inspire or affect others similarly to pick up acts of violence. And that's part of the danger is at least when you have a hierarchical terrorist organization, you have some conceptualization of their skill sets and their capabilities and of their command structure and even of their numbers. But in this much less certain environment and one where the connective tissue is really just communications that circulate around, uh, after all, it's an endless echo chamber, it's very hard to predict what might prove to be the spark or the fulminate that could perhaps trigger an escalation of violence or additional violence. And unfortunately, I think that's probably the clearest strategy that many of these groups have is that they're just dedicated to creating the chaos and disorder that they hope will bring down the system and replace it with some utopian manifestation that conforms to their ideology. Bruce, just quickly, there was lots of attention around the risk of violence around the election. It hasn't happened yet. Um, Are there reasons for that? And is the threat still imminent just in 30 seconds? Well, I think the outcome of the election is still unknown. And certainly since the election was called in favor of, 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 of President-elect Joe Biden, there's been a lot of chatter and a lot of, um, a lot of stirring of the pot that hopefully will just remain chatter and stirring of the pot. But again, I don't think we can be confident that someone won't deliberately provoke or instigate an act of violence in order to provoke further violence. And that's what remains so unpredictable, at least right up until Inauguration Day. Bruce, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jacob. You're very welcome.